Welcome to the Defend the North podcast. I'm your co-host, Dana Eisfeld. I'm joined today by the man who hardly ever carries cash in his wallet, but who can't get enough of Dollar Bill Kirill, the Minnesota Wild left winger who will likely win Rookie of the Year in the NHL. The man who thinks KG in the Basketball Hall of Fame is something we should celebrate. Now, can we just get 21 into the rafters at the Target Center in downtown Minneapolis? And the man who thinks a record of 23 wins and 49 losses is something to build off of if you're a Wolves fan. And there's reason to be hopeful for the 2021-22 campaign. And that's the guy that I call my cousin Isaac. Cuz, how's it going? What's going on tonight? Well, you know, severe weather in Dakota County here in Minnesota and uh, in between ducking tornadoes and and severe weather um, managed to make it on for the pod. Just a casual Minnesota day, right? In the summer, just just casual. Yeah, yeah. yeah like the, the <laughs> I was a little concerned tonight that we weren't going to be able to record, but it looks like the worst of it passed us over. So, unlike the, well, if your roof, go ahead. If your roof flies off while while we're doing this, we'll just we'll just stay strong as long as you're in a safe spot there. Well, if my roof flies off, I might feel a little bit like the twins and Rocco Baldelli in terms of how their season's going. So. Maybe he and I can call and have a little conversation about what to do next. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, what do we got on the docket tonight? What's what's going on? Well, our player spotlight today, we wanted to talk about Kirill Kaprizov, otherwise known as Kirill the Thrill, or as I called him on the opening, Dollar Bill Kirill. Different nicknames. I got I got one more for you. Uh, what's that? The Siberian Sniper. Well, Dollar Bill Kirill, that's who you... Early in the year, um, when the Wild just got going, I know you were um, you were pretty excited about him, and you were pretty excited about this team. You know, I, I, maybe we were five or ten games into the year, and I hadn't heard much yet, but there was a lot of buzz from the get go. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this guy was was fun to watch. I mean, he's he's kind of something we were lacking for the longest time in this Wild team. Like we've kind of always been known for our our defense and we haven't really had this guy who's kind of electrifying on offense at least not since Marion Gabrick right and man that was a while ago so it was nice to get this this kid in here and you know he's not the 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 largest or most menacing looking guy i mean he's only listed at 59 but also impressively he's at 59 200 pounds like holy cow <laughs> I'm I'm six one and like one eighty five. I know I'm a twig, but geez, he's got fifteen pounds on me, and he's he's much smaller than I am. And I mean, we've been waiting on this guy to come forever, right? We drafted him back in in twenty fifteen in the fifth round. Finally, he made it on over here. But before that, he was in the the Continental Hockey League, but he was crushing it there. So I mean, we were excited to get him here. The last two seasons, he led the the Continental Hockey League or KHL in goals, and then he's also like racking up the the playoff experience there too or he played in 47 playoff games for that league having 31 points through those 47 playoff games so he has some playoff experience now it's not really nhl experience which from everywhere i read is a whole heck of a lot different than any other league out there so i mean it's still going to be kind of this this fresh new experience that he's 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 going through right now but i wouldn't say he's your typical rookie i mean he's 24 and he's he's been playing in big games well, I think that time in Russia, Isaac, like we drafted him, as you said, back in 2015 in the NHL entry draft. The overall pick was number 135. He was mm-hmm. the fourth person 
or the fourth draft pick that year that the Wild picked up. And today I went back on the on the Pioneer Press archives and I searched all articles that they have ever written about him. And, and I went back to the first one and it was a draft log. And he was the fourth guy that the Wild selected that year. And we actually had a really good draft that year. Greenway was in it, um, Eric Zanek. And Kaprizov comes up and, you know, there's like two paragraphs about our first round draft pick, two paragraphs about our second round draft pick, scouting report for Kaprizov, 5'10", 180 pounds. So apparently he has put on 20 pounds in the last six years. Shot up draft boards with a very impressive finish to last season. Played in Russia's KHL. Highly skilled. Two more years left in Russia, and that was it. <laughs> and this is a, right, right, right. And this is a guy that you know we're going to get into this that could potentially be the rookie of the year in the NHL. Very strong chances, and you know we'll talk about potential future accolades. But I mean, the Wild stashed him away, right? So we knew when we drafted him that it was going to be two more years. And then I don't remember drafting him, but I do remember that there was talk on the local radio stations in 2017 when he signed a three-year extension for that team in the mm -hmm. KHL, right? And then it's like, okay, so now now he's that's going to be three more years, five years total since we drafted him. He's 24 years old now. But I think he's the guy, he's as good as he is for the Wild because of what he went through in the Russian Hockey League, you know? And the guy that comes to mind for me is Luka Doncic. This young European phenom, he can do a little bit of everything offensively. And he came over here kind of a finished product. Now, like Doncic was like drafted far higher, right? Yeah. In the yeah. NBA draft. But after his time in the Euro Leagues as a teenager, and he took the league by storm in his first year. And then last year, you know, he made that push in, in the playoffs. And, you know, he he's he's kind of a top 10 MVP candidate year to year. And I just wonder with Kaprizov, like, it's kind of the same thing. Like Doncic plays in, in the, 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 the second best basketball league in the world in Spain, and he wins titles for Real Madrid. And this kid coming from the KHL, and you can talk about what, what's the second best hockey league in the world. The Russian Hockey League, it might not be the NHL, but those are some tough mother effers. <laughs> and like I, I think that re-signing there and spending five years total as a professional, I mean, he comes over here and, he brings a little bit of everything, doesn't he, Isaac? Yeah, yeah, he definitely does. Um, I mean, just looking at his stats, I was kind of actually surprised that he didn't have more assists. Like, just watching the game, it seems like he's always involved in, in just about every scoring opportunity. So, yeah, I mean, he's one of those players, and you can kind of tell on in any sport, so it doesn't just go for hockey. But it's like when they have possession of whatever it might be, the puck, the ball, like, you have to just like sit up straight and watch what's going to happen. Cause at any moment he could, you know, it could be Dalvin cook taking it to the house. Uh, it could be Anthony Edwards doing some kind of poster dunk on somebody. Like he's just, you, you got to watch this guy play is, is, is and it's, he's pretty remarkable, but I think you got to remember too, like he's already 24. So, I mean, I was, I was looking at this, this, the wild, you know, franchise points record, right. For a rookie, Marion Gabrick had 36 points his rookie year. But he was only 18. Now, uh, Kaprizov did it in 27 less games, so that's pretty remarkable that he broke it that that quick. But I do think like you need to pump the brakes a little bit on him because like he is excellent and he's really been a transformational piece to this team. But I just think like we're maybe building him up a little too much, and we got to make sure he's really that like 
all NHL player that we need him to be first before we put him on a pedestal way up there. I mean, a typical NHL year is 82 games. Kaprizov plays in only 55 games this year, and he has 27 goals and he has 24 assists for a total of 51 points. He's eighth in the league in goals. And he is a finished product, so maybe the question is where can his ceiling go from here? I mean, if you extrapolate out 55 games and 51 points to 82 games and say he has 75 to 80 points, I mean, we're talking about a top 10 NHL player, right? I, I'm i not sure just because, I mean, you look at the top, the top NHL players and they're well over one point per game, well over. Like, for instance, like Connor McDavid, like probably the best NHL player in the league. I think he has somewhere this year, he's got somewhere around 100 points in the same number of games, basically, as uh, Kaprizov. So, I mean, I'm not saying Kaprizov's Connor McDavid. I mean, we can't we can't make that comparison. But I think he's got a ways to go to kind of reach that top 10 status. Now, again, he's a rookie. But I'm just saying, like, at 24, if we want to even put this into context, the year Gabrick was 25 years old, he scored 42 goals. 42 goals, 41 assists. Over one point per game. And that 42 goals is a franchise record. So, I mean... My question to you, which maybe you're not ready for this, but do you think he can reach Gabrick's status? Well, I, here's the thing. Like, Gabrick, if you're talking about a 19-year-old coming in the league by the time he's 25 and, or 24, 25, he's got five, six years under his belt in the NHL. Playing the in NHL offenses, under NHL coaching, in NHL arenas, with full stadiums, for the record. And, yeah. I mean, Kaprizov comes over in a pandemic year and yes, he's a little bit older, but the way that he transitioned in his rookie year, even though like, I mean, is he a finished product? No, I think he's close to being a finished product. And I think this is largely who we're going to see. So he's strong. You know, you said he's 5'9", 5'10", right? 200 pounds. He's yeah. a, he's a great skater. He's a good playmaker, his endurance, right? Like you can play him on the first line and then rest him for two minutes. And then if you need to, particularly in tight games where you need scores and you're down a goal, you can throw him back in and he looks just as good. So he's got great skating mm -hmm. endurance and defensively, like he's actually a really good player defensively as well. Where you, you've been watching the, the, the first two playoff games this year, right? Yeah. He's a little chippy. I mean, the game, mm -hmm. the game last night, he mini checked the kind of as at the end of a play and he kind of like mini checks the golden Knights forward and, the guy like strikes back and then Dumba comes from behind and puts him in a headlock. Like, so like, you know, Dumba's our enforcer. By the way, that chemistry between Dumba and that entire defensive line and Kaprizov is like, he's one of us. And so, mm -hmm. the, you know, I was, I was watching a video today about that Fox sports North had at the time it was done by Fox sports sports North, not Valley sports North. And they were talking to him and he was engaging in a conversation about, about his time in, in Russia and, his coaches over there always said he was the soul of the team. And, you know, I think this is a difference. Like, you know, Gabrick played in an era. Checking isn't what it used to be. Fighting isn't what it used to be. The lanes are a little bit more open. And so I would expect his scoring in part because of the era that he's playing in and his ability to be both a playmaker. And as we've seen the, the season progress, like early on, you were telling me like, this guy needs to shoot more. This guy needs to shoot more, get it into the back of the net. And he was averaging like one or two shots per game. And in the second half of the season, he's been up more around three or four. Now we need to see that in the playoffs too. 
but personally, like, and I know he's a little bit older and I know he's spent five or six years in a professional league overseas, but I think he's the best Minnesota rookie since Randy Moss in terms of our major sports, because mm. when is the last time that a guy like completely changed the tenor of how we understand the way that a team plays? I mean, the wild have been relatively successful. We're, we're in the playoffs, right? But it's like, you know, that like you're not going to be that excited watching them most nights. You know, Parisi, he's a good player. He's a volume shooter and he scores, but like it's pretty predictable. And mm-hmm. um, the way that Randy Moss just changed the Vikings offense and made them completely explosive over the top. Now, no offense to Adrian Peterson or Joe or, or <laughs> that was that was the only one I was going to bring up was Adrian Peterson. But OK, Joe Maurer and Justin Jefferson, like those are the guys that come to mind for me. But as a casual, okay, I'm not going to call us casual hockey fans. We follow the NHL. We like the Wild and we follow them. But there's a way that we're following them this year that is not in sync with the way that we followed them in the last seven to eight years, or even in the last like four to five under the the, the Zach Parisi Ryan Suter era, right? So what accounts for mm-hmm. that? Why are we tuning in? I mean, I think you have a guy that you have someone that puts on a show every time you put on the game, like. That's always going to be fun to watch. It kind of gives you hope that you know we're actually we actually have a chance every game. Whereas I feel like in past games, where I kind of just said it before, let's like we were really good on defense, but it's like, man, I don't know if we're going to score against this team because we don't have anyone who can do it. Now I I know the start of the playoffs here haven't been too great. I mean he has zero points in the first two games here, but I mean we came away from it with one win. So if he's able to turn it around and get going, then I think that only means you know, better things for the wild. Well, I think about him in the playoffs and the way that Vegas is, um, they're definitely game planning for him the same way that like mm-hmm. when Anthony Edwards had his breakout, like five or six game stretch about a month and a half ago, team started like, okay, we got to pay attention to him. Right. And so yeah. how does he counteract? And I'm not saying that teams haven't been game planning for, for Kaprizov in, in the, towards the end of the regular season with the way he's been playing. But how does he respond when the game plan is all about stopping him? Vegas has been successful in containing him the last two playoff games. He only has five shots on goal. Um, He has set up a couple of um, his teammates that haven't been able to to score, but nobody has against this Vegas goaltender. Flurry's insane. Yeah. I mean, and he. I I don't know how an expansion team gets that kind of goalie. That's just. Ridiculous. I mean, he's single handedly, like, I, I, I mean, Talbot single handedly, like, won the game for us in game one, you know, stopping 42 shots. But last night, like, we outchanced them, we outshot them, we outplayed them, and they beat us three to one. And it was because of their goaltender. Yeah. And all oh, easily. And that, yeah. that, that's going to happen. But, you know, Kaprizov, like, either he's going to need to be able to put the puck in the back of the net or he's going to need to set up guys to do it because we're going to need to score probably two or three goals a night in order to beat this Vegas team. They're, they're good offensively. This is how I think we're going to learn at least, you know, it's his first playoff run, but you know how he responds now in games three and four and what Minnesota does against the, the Vegas golden Knights. You know, I, I think we're going to come away from this season, this season learning a lot about, about Kaprizov and what this might mean for next year. Yeah, you got to tip your hat to Chuck Fletcher for, you know, taking a chance at drafting him and waiting on him. I don't know how most people feel about Chuck Fletcher, but um, they probably don't feel too great about those Parisian suitor 13-year, $98 million contracts. But you know what? Kaprizov, I think, is a win. So nice job, Chuck. Well, another guy that's been a win for a long time in the state of Minnesota is Kevin Garnett, drafted 
by the Timberwolves in 1995, inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. The first, Woo! the first player ever drafted by the Timberwolves franchise, inducted into the into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2021. The big ticket, so deserved. It is so deserved, and it's almost like we're on the map now. And it's hard to like think about that historically because we've been so bad since he left. But it's like we've got a player in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Now, are we two years removed from the Timberwolves potentially playing in another city? Possibly. But at least we got one guy. At least we got one one guy in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, I also like I know he mentioned Minnesota in his Hall of Fame speech, of course, but I wonder how many people really think of KG and think of Minnesota or do they think of Boston? You know, because that's where like his true success came with Boston. I mean, he didn't get that far with us. So how like how many people do you think really think KG, do they think where he started or where he ended? Well, I know the two guys in this pod certainly think about him as a Minnesota Timberwolf. And, you know, <laughs> it, it, in part because not only did he not win a championship in Minnesota and then he goes to the Celtics in 2008 and wins one. But as we've talked about, you know, in, in other podcasts, like the strained relationship that he has with this franchise in large part because of how he and Glenn Taylor just can't seem to get along. He's just not in our, he's not somebody that you see on our sideline. He's not somebody that you see in our stand, somebody talking about the wolves. He didn't even talk about the Timberwolves. I mean, he talked about his teammates as a Timberwolf. Mm -hmm. And he said that he looked forward to rebuilding Minneapolis, which I think was in reference to the social justice movement and the deaths of George Floyd last year and, and Dante right this year and how much money that he's donated and, and how much time that he's put into those efforts. But he didn't say anything about Glenn Taylor. He didn't any, say anything about Kevin McHale. The, <laughs> well, he did say, you're right. He did mention Kevin McHale. <laughs> The first thing, but Kevin McHale was also the guy that traded him to Boston. Yeah. Right? The first thing when he starts talking about Boston is he talks about the ownership. Yeah. And he talks about the franchise. Although he does like leave out a couple of key guys from from Boston. Like I didn't hear anything about Ray Allen. <laughs> it felt so a little, little saltiness it, there, huh? It felt a little MJ-ish in terms of like like he didn't drop any F bombs. Like good for you, KG, because it's hard to listen <laughs> That's to That's very surprising. Yeah. <laughs> But like, you know, who he chose to include and who he chose to leave out had everything to do about the loyalty of his relationships and how he, you know, it feels about people. But I mean, what did this guy do? I mean, to, to deserve an induction in, into the Basketball Hall of Fame. What did he do? I mean, he only, he only led one franchise in basically all categories that are important. And then he was the heart and soul of a Boston team that I mean, took it all like he loved the game, like probably no one else I've watched. Maybe maybe you could throw Kobe in there. Um, I didn't get to watch MJ, unfortunately, that much. But I mean, the passion that guy played with, which I think like I always feel like I want more out of, you know, you look at someone like Cat, you just can't compare him because KG just the amount of motion that guy plays in the game is amazing. It's pretty crazy. We had that kind of player here in Minnesota like kind of unmatched emotion and, and intensity and will to win. Well, you know, Isaac, you start looking at as a fan. And so your relatability to him in terms of a guy that brought it every single night, yeah. not unlike Jimmy Butler and a guy that played with this unmatched passion. And what did that translate to? So 
you think of KG and, and Boston gets all of, I think it, it, the, like the memory shares of Kevin Garnett's career disproportionately fall into Boston's camp because of the 2008 NBA championship, right? Yeah. In terms of the, you know, NBA fans, but 2003, 2004 NBA MVP, the 07, 08 defensive player of the year, albeit with Boston, a 15 time all-star, the majority of those with the Wolves, four time rebounding champ, nine seasons, surprisingly in the top 20 in points per game. You don't think about KG as being, I mean, he was good offensively. You don't think about a him as being great nine time all NBA selections, 12 time all NBA defensive selections, including nine times on the first team seventh all time in games played and seventh all time in defensive win shares. The story of the NBA can't be told without Kevin Garnett and the story of Kevin Garnett can't be told without the Minnesota Timberwolves. Well put, well put, but he doesn't want to be in it right now. Well, what, I, go ahead. This brings us to the to the new ownership group, right? And can they mend fences? Yeah. Well, well, I even heard. Uh, I think Darren Wolfson had a little phone call with Glenn Taylor, and he had asked him about, like, after this Hall of Fame induction, like, are we going to see KG's jersey in the rafters? And and Glenn basically just said, like, he knows we'll do it when he, when he's ready. Like, like we're ready when he's ready. So. I mean, Glenn. Glenn puts it all back on KG, so KG's the one, the only one holding the grudge right now, you know, supposedly. But I, I think that's got to be the first order of business with, with the new ownership. You know, even if they're going to move it at some point, like let's get, let's get twenty one in the rafters for at least a season, and maybe I know you had mentioned the look forward to rebuilding Minneapolis. You know, that's probably the route you went with. It is probably what he's talking about, but. Is there a slight chance that he might be involved in the new ownership? Well, KG is cantankerous. And, you know, there's a lot of guys in the Timberwolves franchise behind the scenes, like not guys not named Glenn Taylor. that kind of said he was a jerk. And I can imagine KG is can be a difficult personality to get along with if you don't agree with him. And mm-hmm. especially if you don't agree with him and you don't talk to him in a way that is um, respectful and that is understanding of what he is trying to accomplish and what he wants, which is what makes him a really, really great teammate, I think. But I think at times it can also be a, he has a bit of a polarizing personality. And so I don't think that a new ownership group can just walk in from day one and be like, yeah, things sucked with Glenn and they're going to be great with us. Like you're, you're going to need to come in and like win him over. And you know, here's, here's the good thing. Like, I don't think that's going to happen until Glenn Taylor's gone and he's going to be involved with Mark Laurie and A-Rod's new ownership group for two more years. So is there a chance that before those two years are up that they could potentially mend fences? And I think to myself, well, you know, Flip helped mend fences back when KG came back on his second stint in Minnesota, right? Now, I know there was a lot of history there and, you know, Flip had a very unique relationship with both KG and with Glenn. But, you know, Mark Laurie and especially A-Rod, and we'll talk about them. Like, we, we wanted to bring them into tonight's conversation, <laughs> but we just thought it might be better to, to hear what they have to say about them owning the team once they have their press conference before we, yeah. we get too deep into the sale and to the legacy of um, Glenn Taylor. But I don't know. Like, it, it, Glenn's going to be involved for two more years, and he's alienated the only legit star, like, legit superstar that the Wolves have ever had. And once you throw in KG's personality where, you know, you really kind of need to work around the edges before you're able to work your way in to the front door, 
I just don't think it's going to be that easy. It's as easy as like, we want you here and 21 is going to be in the rafters. I could be wrong. If they do though, here's the thing though, Isaac, if they do, if the new ownership group, despite Glenn, or even once Glenn's gone in the 2023-24 season, if they make a concerted effort to like weave KG into the fabric of our franchise, that's going to make me feel a lot better about them keeping the Timberwolves in Minneapolis. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have my opinion about that. And uh, I think we, there's, there's a very high chance they don't move the team away, but I think we can save that for probably another pod. So we'll just, we'll just throw that teaser in there. Well, let's, let's keep an eye on this the next two years. Like as the, the, the new ownership group becomes more and more the public face of the franchise, like where is KG like in terms of them coming on board and him being a part of this franchise? Hopefully that press conference is going to be sooner rather than later. I'd rather, I'd really like to hear what, what A-Rod and his buddy Mark Laurie have to say about buying this team from, from Glenn Taylor and how much they're going to learn from him the next two years um, as, as, as mentorees under his mentorship. Really hoping they learn very little and they <laughs> just kind of do their own thing. Cause uh, I can't say that Glenn's done a lot of great things. So, uh, just, just put it in one ear, not the other, please. <laughs> well, Isaac, we're going to continue talking about the Timberwolves, less about ownership and, and, and you know past players, and more about guys we saw on the court this past season and what that mean for and what that might mean for next year after we take a break. Okay, and we're back from break, and and now we're going to talk a little bit about the Minnesota Timberwolves. They ended their season as I, as I said before at uh, twenty three wins and forty nine losses, but there's a lot of hope. I can't remember a team that finished twenty six games under five hundred with a fan base that felt as optimistic as this one did about what next year might bring. <laughs> Is that the is that the case, or are we just falling under the same loop over and over and over again? There's always next year, you know. Good old Minnesota motto is always next year. But what at the end of this year, like, does it feel different than other years? Because it did for me. Yeah. No. I mean, I I think it did too. I I think in terms of just kind of how they played um, was a lot different from previous years because you could kind of tell in previous years that like it was kind of like they were tanking, like they were just trying to get that better draft pick and try and better the team through talent in the draft but this year man they went for it and i don't know if it was a combination of you know the new head coach finch and and the young players we have and finally getting our team healthy again and all back together at the same time minus malik beasley and i think it's it's good that they fought for it and they fought for wins with this young team be different if we like needed young talent then i'd be like what the heck are they doing but it's like you know what we have young talent Let's see what they got. Um, I think Rosas needs that because, like, he hasn't seen this whole team play together at all before this late game stretch, which I guess you can't really say that because Beasley was out. But I think we saw a lot of good things. I mean, we saw what 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 it looks like to have D'Lo and Cat together, and we saw what maybe Ant could become, which is pretty scary for opposing teams, if you ask me. Well, Isaac, our, our draft stock, went from 40% to 28% in terms of hanging on to our first round draft pick this year, as opposed to losing it to the Golden State Warriors, because we went 11 and 11 in our last 22 games since D'Lo's return. And we had, we finished in the bottom three, 
we would have had an equal chance, 40% chance, right, mm. of maintaining that pick. But because now we have the fifth worst record and we moved up the standings, including in the last few days of the NBA season, when team... Is it fifth or, is it fifth or sixth worst record? Could be sixth. Could be sixth. But the bottom line is this. You know, we had a bunch of teams that were tanking against us, at, you know, Orlando oh. and Detroit, and you can probably throw Dallas in there even though they did play their starters for a good chunk of that game and didn't play awfully. And we still beat them pretty handily. But you know, the fact of the matter is, is like, it's like one thing. It's great. We, we need to see time with Edwards and cat and Delo together getting wins, but what do wins mean? Like I watched that Orlando game and in the first half or in the first quarter, there was a graphic there. Like eight of their top nine players were out because of injury, which is, you know, BS. We know that. And then on top of that, they traded their three best players at the trade deadline. And so should I feel good about the Timberwolves core that needs to develop a winning culture and we need to see them play good together, getting a win against that kind of Orlando team? I don't know. I mean, they won by 32. It'd be different if they won by like five points, but they kind of like crushed them, which I feel like you got to feel better about that one than if it was like a nail biter against a team that was legitimately trying to lose. But it was kind of the same thing against Detroit. Like, like we're playing against like a bunch of 20 year old G leaguers. I hope, we, right. I, I hope we can win by 15. And so, okay. Were there wins in this stretch, basically playing 500 ball the last 20 to 25 games that were not against bad teams? Yes, there were. And, you know, ultimately my mind does go to, is it more important that Rosas and Finch can see what they have so that this offseason they can build towards something more? I mean, Kate Cunningham or Evan Mobley or Jalen Suggs would sure look good in a Timberwolves uniform. But what does that mean in terms of like the core development for next year? You know, with or yeah. with or without that top draft pick. What do you think? Well, I mean, even just before I dive into that, like, who's to say we even still land that top three draft pick? Like, you kind of, you know, stated the the odds beforehand. Like, we could have easily tanked and had one of the like worst records in the league, and still not end up with a top three pick. And so, what did we what did we win from this year? Nothing. We didn't we didn't play together as a team, and we didn't even get a good player out of it. So, I mean, why not why not you know put this team together? and let them grow a little bit, let Anthony Edwards, you know, get some more reps. And then who knows, we might be lucky in the draft lottery, which never happens and probably never will. So (laughs) that's a fair point. Like even if we had played the worst ball of the year and we had ended up with the worst record in the NBA, our position in the draft, it would have improved 12 percentage points. That's like the difference between Shaquille O'Neal's free throw percentage and Nas Reed, right? (laughs) so like you're not talking about like it's like basically like 10 percentage points yeah it's not a sure thing yeah but did you see so we early in our in our podcast we talked about what we wanted to see in the second half of the wolves season there was two things like can we play winning basketball like you know and for this franchise at this point that means something close to 500 and then can we see development among our core that gives us encouragement for next year. Did those two things happen? I would say so. I mean, we did end 500 since at least Delo came back. And I mean, we saw great things from Ant. 
who continued to pro- uh, improve throughout the year. And then we also like have Jaden McDaniels, who is potentially the steal of the draft. And then we we saw some like defensive intensity with this team that I don't think we'd seen earlier in the year. So I mean, we we've, we've proved a little bit that we can play some defense, even if it is against the worst teams. Like, I'm not so sure about that. So at all? Okay, so I know on the last podcast, like I talked about. We're not dropping on our pick and roll defense because dropping on your pick and roll defense is really an analytical thing. And we don't do that well because when you drop, like you open up driving lanes and cat is not a rim protector. He's not. So if we had that, because what you want to do when you drop is that you want to entice the defense into mid range shots, which in the modern NBA, like is exactly what executives and most coaching staffs are looking for. Like, We don't want you to shoot at the bucket. We don't want you to get free throws. We don't want you to get a threes. We want you to shoot it from like DeMar DeRozan's range, 14 feet, right? And so watch that all day today. You missed all of them. (laughs) The problem is like, like that'll work if you got a guy that can stop him and and like keep him shooting from 12 or 14 feet. When catch your anchor, it's like the guy shooting from two or four feet. And making layups, right? So that's why that analytical, like minded defense never worked in the Ryan Saunders era. So Chris Finch comes in and he instills, as we talked about, this like whole stay high, scramble, and it looks good. Like it, 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 because it, like the energy is like you're fighting through screens. Like he calls it like the X transition, where like I get my guy and then the guy that is, um, that is picked, like scrambles across. The, the guy that I just picked up behind me to pick up the guy in the corner. So like you get like an X yep. transition, right? Yep. And it feels, and there was like, there were a few games where I felt like we were doing this well and we were winning, but post all-star break, not even counting the five games that we lost under Finch, the five games we lost after Saunders was fired. So just the, the 16 and 20 stretch post all-star break, we're still 29th out of 30 in defense. And Dane Moore, who is one of the the premier Timberwolves podcasters and radio analysts, made this point recently. Like, is that it looks good? Like the guys are moving around more, but is it actually like resulting in fewer points per possession? And so, like being 29th out of 30 in defense post All-Star break, even though you're winning a bunch of games, that leads me into like a lot of thoughts about the offseason and what we should do. Yeah, I mean, before before you get there, like, like I agree, like the obviously that's not good that they're that low in in defense. But I I think a lot of it is, like, I don't think this this defense is a finished product. Um, I mean, we already seen that Vanterpool isn't coming back, who was supposedly the defensive coordinator. I mean, we 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 heard I don't remember who said it, but someone basically said like basically this defense was instilled so that the players could think less on defense before they were thinking way too much and wasn't working. Oh, so like a Kirk Cousins, like, so like a Kirk Cousins offense. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Make it simple. But, right. Make it simple. And like, yeah, make it simple, stupid. Um, but I think so. So to me, some of the stats that I pulled out that were very, very interesting in this, this run since Delo returned was the fact that we were fifth in steals and eighth in blocks. So we're active. So we're active on defense. We're active. We're active, but I think to almost to a fault. I think we like overcommit on things. We try to make too many plays. 
Another stat I saw was opponent assists. We were last, dead last in opponent assists in that same in that same stretch. So we're we're causing a ton of turnovers for their team, but basically when we're not causing turnovers, they're so wide open that the, the the other team's passing to. So my thought is like like I think we have is as much as the stats say it's bad, I think it's possible we could have something. I think we just need to like almost dial it back. But we're we're creating kind of havoc on defense. But I think it's almost too much because we're we're still allowing a really good field goal percentage, um, and there's still a lot of points in the paint. So it's just a matter of like honing in on maybe just knowing the system better, knowing to not overcommit for certain balls. I just kind of wanted to throw that out there because I, I I thought it was interesting that how like disruptive in terms of steals and blocks like the team really was, yet we were still really low in defensive like defensive rating. Well, we're still giving up a high percentage of three-pointers, and we're still giving up a lot of points in the paint. So if our perimeter players, and I think if they buy in, we have the athletes to be able to close out and to, to play that, you know, I guess you call it a scramble defense. But maybe you don't need to do that if you bring in somebody that can lock down the the the, the paint for you. Because it's not like... Yeah. On offense, like, Cat really is just in this Finch offense probably more of a post, like whether you want to call him a four or you want to call him a five, it's semantics. He's being, he's very successful, but defensively. And we exchanged, you know, days full of text about this. Like if we want to solidify our interior defense, and if we potentially want to return to a more analytical form of drop defense on pick and rolls, where we can stop a guy and we can force them into mid range shooting. I'm not sure that guy's Jaden McDaniels. And I'm also not sure that guy's Naj Reed. I think Jaden McDaniels is a, is a three. The last game of the mm-hmm. season in, in the in the presser, they were like, um, they asked uh, Finch a question about, you know, what do you want McDaniels to focus on in the off season? And one of the guys was like, he's like six nine, one seventy. You know, talk about five ten, one, you know, one or two hundred with Kaprizov or whatever you are, but six nine and like, I mean, he was joking that he's one seventy. But the, the point that Finch made was we, we want him to get stronger, but we don't want him to put too much weight on that frame because he has a great NBA body. And so to me, like, can he play the four? He's long enough to make it disruptive, but it really sounds to me like they think of him as a three. Mm-hmm. And he's probably better suited there. I'm not saying yeah. he'll never be, you know... Um, a guy that's, you know, 210, 220, if he gets six, eight years into his career. But right now that's who Jade McDaniels is and he, he'll get stronger. But okay, so what does that mean for your four or five defense? And we've talked a lot about this. Like, do we need a power forward or do we need a center? Yeah, I mean, defensively, we need a center. But honestly, we just need a guy in the four or five who can take on those those big guys down low as well as be able to to move a little better on that drop coverage. Now I'm still, <laughs> I'm still probably like more a fan of. I don't know if it's old basketball or what you want to call it, but I personally hate drop coverage defense, and maybe it's just because I've watched Cat do it for so long that it just pisses me off. But I would so much prefer like a like a high pressure defense, like get up in the guard's face. <sighs> we need a five on defense, bad. Okay, so I'm thinking. Whether it's a five or it's a very strong and tall and big bodied four who plays good yeah. defense. Like it, it to me, like especially with the free agent market, like it doesn't make that much of a difference. But 
you know, we have a 72% chance of losing our first round pick. So like Evan Mobley, even though he could be considered one of the top picks, like, is he a guy that we can bring in next year with a timeline for this team? That's something to think about. Or do you trade? And because we have no cap space. So either we get it through the draft, which is unlikely, or we trade. And so if we trade for a power forward or a center to bring us some stability on defense, how does that happen? I mean, I think you look at, to me, it's Beasley or Rubio. One of those two guys got to go because you, you look at them together and those two together is a 32 million cap hit. 32 million. Rubio's got 18. Beasley's got about 14. Um, I guess Rubio's a little under 18. But in my opinion, both are non-starters. You're paying them that much to come off the bench. Like, we don't need both of them. Now, it's difficult to figure out which one's going to be more valuable because, to me, Rubio's been been priceless when it comes to having him as a mentor for Anthony Edwards. So, to me, that's where Rubio is just a little ahead of Beasley, but I know Beasley's like... Beasley's instant offense. I mean, you can never have enough shooting on a team. So then you have that to think about too. But to me, it's it's those two. And I guess if you're trying to get a better player, I, to me, I think Beasley would have more value. He's got a low, lower salary hit. And, uh, I mean, he's proven that he can, he can light it up from three. So I think it's got to include Beasley if we're going to get someone a value back. So you think we trade Beasley and maybe even a draft pick because this team is kind of like the Vikings at this point. We're all in like, we have to be with, with the, with two um, max contracts in, in D and cat. Is that the move? Like, like Rubio, here's the problem with Rubio is that although he's been a great mentor, $18 million a year for a backup point guard and a mentor is a lot of money. And so what value does that have? What va- it, It's been valuable for Ant's development, but what value does that have on the open market? Well, here's here's how I think about it. So if, if he's the true mentor for Ant and helping Ant out, why don't you just flip-flop those two salaries? Now, I know those guys don't see that going to their bank, but you know if you look at Anthony Edwards making almost $18 million and Ricky Rubio making about $10 million, that doesn't hurt as much. You know, As long as we got those two paired up, like... Well, I mean, long-term, though, also, how long is a guy like Anthony Edwards going to need a mentor? Like, first year in the league, figuring things out, COVID protocols. You know, Cat's not exactly a guy that commands a locker room. You know, Rubio steps in, and, like, Ant, with his gregarious personality, is drawn to him. You know, and and, and Rubio, to his, his experience in the NBA, I mean, he's a guy. Ant's, what, 19? Rubio was playing mm. professionally in Spain, the second best basketball league in the world by the time he was 15 years old. So he knows what it's like to have pressure on him as a young man. He's also played alongside of Devin Booker and Donovan Mitchell the last two stints, you know, after the, the mm-hmm. Timberwolves let him go. So he's had a lot to give. But a guy like Anthony Edwards, I kind of feel like, you know, next year, the year after, like he's kind of going to figure this out on his own. Like, I'm not sure how much a veteran presence is going to make a difference. It's going to be more about how his ego and his style of play fits in alongside of Cat, D'Lo, and potentially Beasley. So do we trade Beasley or do we not? Uh, I mean, in my opinion, I think we do. So does the does the market for Beasley and a potential draft pick bring us the kind of four or five, you know, starting you know, power forward or center that makes a difference defensively and also does not 
become a deterrent to like Chris Finch's offense. Cause that's the other thing. Like, like you can bring in a guy that anchors us defensively, but if he can't do anything offensively, that's going to be a problem. So can Beasley and a, and, and a pick bring that in? I mean, is it going to be a problem if he doesn't do much offensively? I mean, look at, look at how, how impactful Jared Vanderbilt was. And I know like we're not a winning, we're, we weren't a winning team this year, but I mean, Finch loved that guy. He loved playing that guy and that guy in offense. Like he doesn't do much outside of offensive rebound. That's about it. So, I mean, if you can pull in a guy that has more ability than Jared Vanderbilt and is a bigger presence on defense, like I think Finch can still run his offense. But the Beasley and a pick, I mean, to me in today's NBA, I feel like that could bring you a four or five that's maybe maybe not as valued as that team views it just because Beasley is such a great shooter in today's NBA. It's like, three-point shooting, three-point shooting, three-point shooting, and maybe some defense and some more three-point shooting. To me, I think that's our best shot in terms of trade trading, unless, of course, we want to trade one of our players that I figure to be untouchable, like, a, you know, McDaniels. Maybe Nas Reed could go. I don't know. I'd rather keep both of those. So I think Beasley has to go, and this is the reason. Like, he's got a low-cap hit. He's a productive NBA offensive player. He's a great three-point shooter. He's got value on the market. Rubio is not going to bring anything back that's going to make a difference. He could. The other thing is that I don't think, like, where's his role? So next year, if you're starting D'Lo and you're starting Edwards and you're starting Towns, and then you probably need two defensive players the way that Finch has been playing this this year, you know, and it's been largely Okogie and McDaniels or Okogi and Vanderbilt, but you need a defensive. Like Finch seems to like a guy on like one perimeter defender and one interior defender. Beasley does not fit into that. So is he your sixth man? And, mm-hmm. you know, is that a role that he will accept? And so maybe like if Finch is like actually a master of egos, because he's been pretty good with, with um, D'Lo in terms of, bringing him back as a sixth man and like talking to him about like, you know, Hey, eventually your role is going to expand and we're going to bring you back into the starting lineup. And D'Lo like this team seems to be behind Finch. So part of me wants to think like we could bring back our four best offensive players. Finch could figure out a way to make it work. Ant evolves into your one a, which makes cat more naturally as he should be your one B D'Lo becomes your playmaker. Maybe he's a 17 and 10 guy rather than a 22 and six guy, which you've been talking about, by the way, since day one in Minnesota, the, his value ultimately is he's a pass first guy going back mm-hmm. to his time in, in New Jersey. And, and you were right about that. Or was it Brooklyn by then? I can't even remember. Brooklyn. Uh, it was Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you were on like the D'Lo is a pass first guy since day one. And I think D'Lo would be comfortable being our number three. And so, like, if we bring back Beasley, it's like we're going to try to outscore teams 140 to 130. (laughs) If we trade, and I just don't know if it's possible, but if we trade, it's going to be because Finch is going to bring in an an assistant coach on defense that believes that we need to have a guy besides Towns in the interior. Well, before we finish out the pod, I wanted to ask you one more question. Dave Benz, at the end of the last game of the season— 
the, the Timberwolves commentator for Valley Sports North, said that he thinks, based on what he's seen, in, especially in April and May, that Ant has the potential to become a top 10 player in the NBA next year. Does he? Top 10. Mm. I feel like next year's a little soon. I, th- I think he can, he can go on. I think he can have moments where he's top 10, but I don't think it can, yeah, I don't think he can sustain it the whole year. I don't, I mean, maybe if he keeps up what he, what he did in May, I know that was only a, an eight game sample, but he had, I mean, he had 27, five and four on 52%, 40%, 79% shooting. That's pretty damn close to top 10. If he keeps that well, up, but that's Isaac, what it is like, not just May, but if you, if you track that back to like late March, it's Donovan Mitchell equivalent, and it's ninety percent of Luka Doncic, and that's with D. Yeah. That's with D'Lo in the rotation on offense. Right. Dave Benz is a little prone to hyperbole. I don't. I don't think that top ten is is Ant in year two, but I do wonder. Like the the optimistic side of me, and this is very hard for me to draw up from the you know the the depths of my soul as a Timberwolves fan, because there is so little that I have to work off of in terms of historical precedent (laughs) that this will happen. But there is a universe. There is a universe. It might be a multiverse where this is one of like 20 contingencies where (laughs) Ant evolves. And, you know, there's a lot of limitations in my, like I like Donovan Mitchell, but I don't like him as much as I might like Ant. And I still go back. And I, I know that I said that, Kenta Maeda reminded me of Greg Maddox. So our <laughs> listeners, and he was number two in Cy Young voting last year. Granted, it was a smaller sample size. So I get it. Like, I like to compare things in Minnesota to great things, be- mostly because I haven't seen them. But <laughs> there's a version of Anthony Edwards that emerges, maybe not into the top 10 conversation, but even in the top 20 conversation. And now we're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, is, is he somebody like that, you know, NBA balladers are considering for third team all NBA. I just, I'm, I can't, I can't wait to see what he comes back as in the off season, his first NBA off season. I, I, I feel like something really, really good is going to happen with him. And do I think it's going to be top 10? Like Dave Ben says, no, but I do think he could get there one day. I just don't think it's next year. Okay, with that talk about Anthony Edwards as a potential top 20 player next year, that's going to do it for tonight. And and as we always do, I'm going to let Cousin Isaac take us out. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed the pod, and we'll uh, talk to you soon. Stay safe out there.